And uh, Jerry Usain writes these words in this article. He says, of all the issues that preoccupy the modern mind, nature or nurture, is there life in outer space? Why can't American field a decent soccer team? It's hard to think of one that has attracted so much watercolor philosophizing, yet so little scientific inquiry. Does it pay to be nice, or is there an advantage of being a jerk? Now, the article, if you read it, features many different leaders and different vocations that have been successful, but let's just be honest, they are real jerks. Uh, probably featured in the article is probably no surprise to you, a very brilliant guy by the name of Steve Jobs. And uh, Steve Jobs, the founder of Apple, as you know, was really talented. He profoundly shaped the contours of the world. And his biographer, Walter Isaacson, set up 60 Minutes of Steve Jobs this way. He could have been a lot kinder. But it's not only talented business leaders and successful corporate leaders and all vocations that act like jerks. I don't know if you followed this year, there was a lot of press about a very talented, gifted, successful mega pastor in Seattle. And that his whole ministry uh, melted down, not because of some moral issue or financial issue, because of his abusive nature to others. See, the inconvenient truth for all of us is we can be awful and intensely successful, amazingly successful, either in our work or school or our friendships, but we can be very unloving in life. It is not that being successful or being really good at something or talented is bad in itself. The problem is, we can be very unloving while doing it. And the question we want to ask this morning, that I think this text calls us to, is do we want to be awesome? Do we want to be really great or do we want to be loving? Do we as pastors want our church family to... Notice us for our talent or our gifts, or rather that we love them dearly. We want to provide for our kids as parents every advantage, every successful trajectory. Or do we want them first to know that we deeply and unconditionally love them? Now think with me for a moment in our workplace this week, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, on our sports teams. Would you and I rather be known for how talented we are or how loving we are. The text this morning brings us to this question. Perhaps the most beautiful love poem ever written by human hands. And it raises the question, do we want to be loving or great? Because Paul will tell us this morning that love trumps greatness. Love trumps talent. Love trumps everything. Do we want to be awesomely successful, or do we want to be incredibly loving? Where is our life compass setting point? What is our true north this morning? Well, the text is a common one, isn't it? And if you've not turned it already, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Whether you've read the Bible a lot, since you've been a wee little person, or you're just getting back to reading the Bible, or you've not read much of it, or you're just coming back to church, these words are not unfamiliar to you, right? You hear them at weddings, you read them on greeting cards. But the original context in which they were written is not about good words for a wedding, it's good words for church members to get along when their spiritual gifts are different. It's about getting along in church, was the primary context of this beautiful love poem. 
As a church family, we've been exploring 1 Corinthians. It's a marvelous letter. And the first century church was amazingly talented and gifted. They were an amazing bunch of people. But they were acting like unloving jerks. They had an abundance of gifts and talents, but they had a scarcity of love. And Paul speaks into this. And Paul makes the case that it doesn't pay to be a jerk at all, no matter how gifted or talented. What matters most is we must be loved. So Paul, in his most beautiful poem, unpacks it in a threefold stage. The literary structure follows its threefold pattern. Paul will say that love is far better than anything. It is better in three ways. First, Paul will say, love is better than greatness. Secondly, Paul will say, love is better than any sentimentality. And third, love is only going to get better in the future. I want to first look at the first compelling reason why love is so essential and great, and that is that love is better than greatness. I want you to notice, if you rub open as you turn there, I want us to start at the end of chapter 12. Paul has just finished discussing all the spiritual gifts, at least some of them, and we're in this mini-series about spiritual gifts across our campuses. Here, Paul will highlight some spiritual gifts, and then he will say, I will show you a more excellent way. What is that excellent way? And this is the greatest love poem that follows. Now notice the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. I want to read them again and press into them with us. Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now the tendency for us when we hear these words is to misunderstand, misunderstand what he's saying. We often hear them like this. If I don't have love, I am nothing. Paul's understanding is a bit different. He is saying, if I am not a loving person, then I am nothing. Now in the original language, this word nothing is very essential for us to grasp. It connotes not just something we possess, but nothing that we are. In other words, that life doesn't matter. Without love, there is a haunting emptiness to every effort, but Paul's emphasis is there is a haunting emptiness to our existence. It's like, without love, we are nothing. We have no meaning or consequence or no value at all. So Paul pulls out all the stops right at the beginning of his poem. Eugene Peterson, in his brilliant paraphrase called The Message, hits it out of the park here when he says, No matter what I say, what I believe, or what I do, I am, listen, I am bankrupt without love. Paul wants us to understand that in every dimension of our being, without love, we are bankrupt as a person. But what Paul is doing here, for those of us who love literary beauty and structure, he uses a rare literary device called hyperbole. It's a Greek word simply makes this idea of kind of over-the-top comparison. It's a heightened exaggeration. Paul is making a big point with a riveting contrast, and you feel it, right? There's some pretty heavy stuff he describes here. Talents and gifts off the charts, sky-high knowledge, brilliance, the ability to speak languages, languages even of angels, unimaginable philanthropy, do you see it? Unthinkable martyrdom, martyrdom for what one believes, yet without love. Paul says, my life, your life, is simply a bunch of transitory, meaningless 
noise, nothing. Paul's addressing the peril all of us face. All of us are humanly blind, and there's a paradox embedded in this poem. It's a perilous paradox that you and I can have so much and possess so little. We can have so much talent and be so utterly impoverished. And this is what Paul wants us to reflect on. Paul wants to drive home the point to our hearts that love trumps any gift and talent that we may have. That love is better than any kind of human greatness. In fact, love itself is the essence of human greatness. Love is not simply another act that we use alongside other apps of spiritual gifts. Paul is saying, uh-uh. It is the very operating system that makes everything work. Love is what our lives and our gifts are built on. In other words, we were created to matter, and we long to matter. So the deepest longings of our heart for meaning. And Paul is saying to the first century Christians and to each one of us, wherever we are in our spiritual life, we can get so way off course and live talented, gifted, successful, yet loveless lives, and our life will mean nothing. That's stunning. And it's challenging. One of my duties as a pastor, it's a great privilege and a challenge, is to officiate at memorial services and funerals. There's something about memorial services and funerals that clarify our thinking and transform us. We are confronted with our own mortality. At funerals, often we hear people talk about their loved one's life. Because in our death, we often reflect the bigness or smallness of the life we have lived. One of my favorite movies, it was really not a blockbuster the last couple years, but uh, I think it's one of the best movies I've seen in the last two years. Maybe you saw it, it was an indie film called The Book Thief. It's a remarkable film, actually, in so many ways from its creativity. But the story is set in Nazi Germany. And uh, what's really remarkable for this film, I won't tell you too much about it, but is that the film's narration is a personification of death. Death narrates the movie. And uh, the father of the main character is this amazing, loving man. He does all these amazing, loving things. His ugliness and beauty clash in this movie. Hideous ugliness and stunning beauty. He hides a Jew in his basement. He feeds a starving man. And this guy is amazingly loving. Now, the book, which the movie is based on, captures this man's death. And brilliantly, these words emerge in this novel. As death welcomes him. His soul set up and met me, as kinds of souls always do. They are the best ones. The ones who rise up and say, I know who you are, and I am ready. Not that I want to go, of course, but I will come. Those souls are always light because more of them have been given away. More of them have already found their way to other places. See, at the end of the day, Paul's poem of love calls us with this question. What will we be known for? What will our life be all about? What will be said at your memorial service? What will be said at mine? Will it be how talented and successful we have been and how loving we have been? 
Will it be about how we love God and Christ and others? Or how we love their own success, our own reputation, our own achievements? Paul wants us to know right up front that love trumps greatness. It trumps talent. It trumps everything. I don't know if you follow New York Times columnist and bestseller David Brooks has just come out with an extraordinary book called The Road to Character. In it, he speaks in an interview recently about Christianity's radical revolution of love, and that's not his religious background. And he writes these words. He says, the Gospels brought about a revolution in morals. To put it broadly, there was a shift from a desire for power to a desire for sacrificial love. And that's what Paul is saying. And Paul wants to give us a picture of what love is, really. What is it? And so he gives us this brilliant portrait in verses 4 through 8. And he tells us that, secondly, love is far better than any sentimentality. In verses 4 through 8, we see this kind of love. And notice the difference in our cultural context. In our cultural context, isn't it true that love and happiness are often so confused? For many, love is primarily a happy feeling we feel. And yet all of us know how fickle our hearts are about what we love and the fattest things we feel. It might be a television program we thought was really cool and all of a sudden we kind of lost that love and feeling. Or another person. Or a food we love and now we don't love anymore. And that's true of people. For Paul, notice, true love is more than just a feeling. It's more than feeling in a particular way. Now, Paul is not saying that love is unfeeling, but that love has the capacity to transcend feeling. So true love, treasured love, is not mere sentimental glitter. It is the glue of life. A Dallas Willard, the late Dallas Willard, who was a professor of philosophy at USC, in a brilliant book called Revolution of Character, defines love, I think, as good as anyone. Listen carefully to his definition, because it echoes Paul. Love is willing the good. We love something or someone when we promote its good for its own sake. What characterizes the deepest essence of God is love. That is willing the good. Paul's poem of love, in its brilliant literature, in its brilliant content, forces us not just to dwell in its beauty, but it forces us to look in the mirror of our own hearts. It forces us to ask this question as we read it, am I a growing, loving person? Paul wants us to look in the mirror of our own lives and reflect on this question. And Paul describes what a loving person looks like, and he wants us to take an inventory. That's how he designs it. So let's look a bit at how he describes love. Notice, Paul begins first by saying love is patient and kind. Isn't it amazing that right at the start, Paul is saying something to us. He is saying love is truly hard work at its very beginning, at its middle, and its end. Some of the older translations of this text have actually, I think, a better word. The older translations describe that love is long-suffering. Paul wants us to know right away that true love is more than a warm feeling. It's a marathon of commitment. It is unconditional regard. It is safety with another person. And love is something that leads us to treat others who may at times be very unlovely with the highest value, with the most tender kindness, with the most gentle warmth and humble affirmation. 
Now notice also in his description of love that Paul spends more time describing what it isn't. You see that? He says, love is not envious or boasting. It's not arrogant or rude. Now Paul must have had in mind what was going on in the Corinthian church here. Why would Paul say this particularly? Because the Corinthian church, there was all kinds of jockeying for position. There was enemies or those gifts. And this pride was wreaking havoc. This super spirituality and pride around gifts was wreaking havoc in the church. Because they were envying other people's gifts, or they were pridefully bragging about their talents, or their ability to speak in tongues, or their prophecy, or their miracles. And this comparison absolutely is a killer. It's a killer in our lives, isn't it? Comparison to others in any context is one of the greatest pillars of joy and contentment. None of us, none of us want to be more caring, right? None of us want to sort of be unnoticed or average. We all want to be awesome. When's the last time you thank God for being average? Well, let me just say, if the bell curve is right, you know, we're all pretty average about a lot of things. And God loves very average people with very average gifts. I love that about this text. And love doesn't convey itself with others. It doesn't compare itself with others. Love has a contentment in the moment. Notice Paul continues to describe love as being free to give out its way. Not having the last word. Is that a good one? How many of us have to have the last word in their argument? Love does not have to have the last word. It does not have to always be right or prove that it is right. Notice love is not irritable. It doesn't hold a grudge. And notice in the text, love rejoices the truth. So many times today we hear this language, maybe you do too, it's better to be kind than right. You ever heard that? And there's some good truth in that, right? It's important to be kind. But love cares deeply about truth. In fact, this text reminds us that love is bullish on truth. And love is tenacious in its sacrificial commitment to the very end. In other words, love hangs in there and holds on for dear life. Love believes the best, it holds on to hope. And Paul wants us to know that true love is not the glitter that makes life sparkle. It is the glue that holds life together. Paul is saying love is not just sentiment. It is intentional and requires practice and takes hard work. Now, the Holy Spirit empowers those of us who are Christians, who trusted Christ to love, but that does not mean we do not have a role in becoming a more loving person. Faith and love are like a muscle. They grow with exercise. And a vital aspect of spiritual formation is love formation. We must not confuse spiritual gifts with spiritual formation or spiritual maturity. Don Carson, who's a wonderful professor of New Testament, says this is by themselves your spiritual gifts attest nothing spiritual about you. In other words, the Corinthian church had all kinds of problems with their spiritual gifts, and they lacked a deep spirituality. Now, this came home true, very true, and very hard to listen to when we were in seminary many years ago. We attended a wonderful church, and the leading pastor, the leading teaching pastor, was marvelously gifted, an amazing communicator. Some of the one of the most amazing communicators I've ever met. Yet, one Sunday morning, our world was shattered when it was revealed that he was living a lie. 
loving not his wife, but another woman who was not his wife. We were completely devastated sitting right where you were sitting. But we came face to face with the truth that we've held on to for all these years. The spiritual gifts are not about us or for us. They're for others. God may often does use our giftedness and talents, even if our lives are not where they should be. This makes sense because our gifts and talents have never been given to us, for us, or for others. This is one of Paul's main themes in these four chapters. Now, while discovering our spiritual gifts is important, and as a church family, we have given you a spiritual gift inventory on our website to help learn where you're gifted. How has God equipped you to serve in your workplace, and home, and neighborhoods, and the church? How has God uniquely made you? And that's important. But Paul does not give us a spiritual gift inventory in these chapters, but he does give us a love inventory. And verses 4 through 8 are meant for us to do inventory on our love formation. So can I ask you a question? As I asked myself this week, when you look at 1 Corinthians 4, or 13, 4 through 8, does that describe you? Does that describe you? If you're married, if I asked your spouse, how would they describe you? How about your friends at school? How would they describe you? How about your parents? Or your children? I would ask them, what is so-and-so like? What words would come to mind? Think of me for a moment. Are you patient and kind? Or are you impatient and unkind? Are you prideful or are you humble? Are you forgiving or do you hold a grudge? Are you grateful and enjoyable to be around or are you irritable and prickly? You always have to get your way. You always have to get in the last word. Are you and I safe people? Can others trust us to keep with confidence? Can our friends trust to have their back? We will be there. Do you honor them with what you say? See, the danger of this text this morning for all of us is we have a superficial familiarity with it. And it's beautiful and it's poetry. But it's meant to not only be beautiful, but to challenge us for a law how we live. Paul reminds us that what matters most is love. It's better than greatness, it's better than sentimentality. And notice where Paul goes at the end of his poem in verses 8 to 13. It's the third compelling reason why love is the greatest. And that is that love is only going to get better. I love this about verse 15 13. It's often missed. Here in verses 8 through 13, he looks to a future day when the perfect comes. That is, when Christ will return and usher in the new heavens and new earth, when sin and tears and dying will be no more. When human giftedness will be eclipsed by an unfettered love for God and others. Can you imagine? And Paul frames this joyful anticipation of a knowledge and love that will only get better by comparing it to what we experience now as child's play or infant's play. What Paul is saying with this metaphor of child, even our most childlike love and delight would be nothing compared to what we experience one day in the new heavens of the earth. 
In other words, even the best moments, think of the best moments of joy this week, or this month, or this year in your life, the most giddy moments of ecstasy and joy are absolutely comparable to what's just around the corner. That's what Paul said. One day, happiness and love will become one, Paul says. They will not be frustrated. They will not be confused. They will not be divided or limited. Paul is saying, you ain't seen nothing yet. That's how he goes. Right now, Paul says our vision is blurred, right? He says it's like looking in a mirror. In the first century, the mirrors were not as clear as our thoughts. It was a dim view. What we see now, we see, but we see it dimly. And one day we will see reality as God sees it. And we will fully experience the intimate love of God that we were created to have in the Garden of Eden before sin and death entered the world through the fall. Think with me for a moment. There are a few things we long for more, right? Than to be completely known and completely loved by another. That's what we were created to have. That kind of intimacy with God occurs. Yet we also fear being known, right? We fear being known. In our brokenness, we feel the shame of our shortcomings. When people know us, they see our flaws. We want to hide them. We also feel the pain of rejection by others. And many of us have convinced ourselves that if someone really knew me, you know, really knew what I was like, they wouldn't love me. They couldn't love me. Because I'm such a mess. So we spend our lives doing what? In a very sophisticated game of adult hide and seek. Longing to be known, yes. Longing to be found. Longing to be loved, but fearful all around. We're caught in the middle. But the good news of the gospel is that there is one who knows you and me completely and sees us as we really are and still loves us unconditionally and completely. His name is Jesus. Paul is saying if you want to know what true love is, look to Jesus. Jesus became love in the flesh. Paul could have inserted Jesus' name for the word love here. Just the same. Listen, as I did that. Jesus is patient and kind. Jesus is not envying or boast. Jesus is not arrogant or moody. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not irritable or resentful or arrogant. Jesus does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus bears all things. He believes all things. He hopes all things. Jesus' love never fails. Out of pure sinless love, Jesus entered this broken world. And he went to the cross and he laid down his life for you and me. He bore our sin, your sin and my sin. He made it possible for us to be forgiven, to be given new life and experience the intimacy and the intimate love for which we were created, which all of us long for. Isn't it amazing that the writer Isaiah in the Old Testament looks down the road of history and time to Jesus the Messiah and looks at him not as being awesome or successful or great, but rather as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, one despised. Yet out of unfathomable love, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah says, with his stripes we are healed. Writer John reminds us that we are like sheep that have gone astray. But the good news of the gospel for all of us is we too can be found. We can love like Jesus loves. 
because Jesus has first loved us. John writes this in 1 John 4, 19. We love because what? He loves us. If we experience Jesus' transforming love for us, it makes it possible for us to live this kind of love Paul is talking about every day in our workplace, with our friends at school, in our neighborhood, and in our families, and to do church with love. Because true love is the most transforming, powerful reality imaginable. One of the finest books in the Christian tradition on this subject called Christian Love is by J.C. Ryle. And he says Paul ends this beautiful text with a poetic exclamation point, and this is how he describes it. Listen carefully to these beautiful words. Love in the last place is the greatest of graces because it is the one which endures the longest. In fact, it will never die. Faith will one day be swallowed up in sight and hope and certainty. Their office will be useless in the morning of the resurrection and like old almanacs, they will be laid aside. But love will live on through the endless ages of eternity. Heaven will be the abode of love. The inhabitants of heaven will be full of love. One common feeling will be in all their hearts, and that will be love. So how do we begin to live this out more fully? Let me suggest three application points to tuck into your heart this week. First is this. How do we love like Jesus loves? First, we need to learn from Jesus. Jesus invites us to be his apprentice. In Matthew 11, 28-30, Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and related. I will give you rest. I'll give you the life you are craving for. But take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The most loving creature of the universe, the most loving being, I should say, of the universe, invites you and me to experience intimate love and to learn love like Jesus would, and to live it as if he were us. If you become an apprentice of Jesus, he is there for you. Day by day, moment by moment, to teach you to love others like 1 Corinthians 13. So let me ask some questions. How would Jesus verbally communicate love to those in your life this week? Think of all those in your life, at work, at home, your children, your parents. How would Jesus verbally communicate love to them? How would Jesus treat those you work with, the customers you serve, the clients you serve? How would Jesus love how would Jesus love your friends you're hanging out with this week? Jesus wants to teach you and me how to love if we are yoked with him and his apprentice. But we also need to learn from others. We often miss that. I remember growing up as a young boy watching my mom. My mom was a follower of Jesus and one of the most amazing, loving people I've ever known. She loved every day and she loved some of the most unlovely people. It was at her feet I learned most about love. See, we learn from others about love too, don't we? And Paul will say earlier in Corinthians, he will say something startling. He says, imitate me. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Paul was not perfect. But Paul understood that we learn how to love from others in spiritual community. All of us become like those we spend time with. And the local church is this laboratory of Christ-like love. It's a spiritual formation school of Christ-like love. We learn from one another when we're in Lastly, we learn from the Holy Spirit. Isn't it interesting, the night before the crucifixion, when Jesus gathered his disciples together, he said, I'm leaving, but he said, I'm going to send a helper, 
the Holy Spirit. And the question is a helper for what? What is the Holy Spirit given to Christians to do? Now, there are many things the Holy Spirit does in our life. But one of the main things the Holy Spirit is given to us to empower us is to live 1 Corinthians 13 out every day in our life to empower us with a supernatural love. See, the Holy Spirit is given to believers in Christ not to make us look good to others, but to make us look more like Jesus to others. And to love others like Jesus. That is why we're encouraged throughout all the New Testament to be filled with the Spirit and to walk in the Spirit. To experience the fruit of the Spirit, which is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and so So Paul says this. In this marvelous poem, love prompts talent. Love trumps greatness. Love trumps everything. Paul finishes with these words. Faith, hope, and love abide. These three and the greatest of these is not. Let's your hands bowed and your eyes closed this morning. You take just a moment and reflect. Ask God to speak to you. Are you loving like Jesus? Heavenly Father, teach us to love and live like our crucified and risen Savior. Teach us that loving like Christ unfolds in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we embrace Jesus' precepts and practices. And we dwell in your love for us. And we dwell in your love for us, unearned, unmerited, but given as grace. May you love others through us. Lord, teach us individually, as families, or married as couples, as a local church community, as a multi-site church congregation, to be a people of increasing Christ-like love. Love for you, love for our neighbor, love for our local world. For without love, Christ-like love, Father, we are just as meaningless noise in this. Lord, teach us to love to your glory.